Next, on Book TV's Afterwards, former New Jersey governor and presidential candidate Chris Christie discusses his political career and offers his insights into the Trump administration. He's interviewed by CBS News Chief White House Correspondent Major Garrett. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. Governor Christie, welcome. Why, Thank you. Why did you write the book? You know, uh, Major, I had wanted to write a book for some time, really starting after Hurricane Sandy, because I thought there were lots of stories to tell um, about you know my governorship and my getting to the governorship. Um, and then once I ran for president, I knew there were a lot of stories to tell. And so to me, uh, now going into the last two years of the Trump administration and my involvement with all of them, um, I thought that there were just some things that people needed to know. Um, I wanted to tell them what had happened to me and in my life. And, and I think, you know, being able to tell the truth um, about all the things that have gone on and maybe pull the curtain back a little bit for folks and let them see what it's like to be involved as a presidential candidate in a presidential campaign as one of the more visible governors in America um, would be something that people would like to read. You just said a moment ago, the last two years of the Trump presidency. Are you expecting only one term? Oh, no. I mean, in, in the last two years, the Trump presidency, no. I have no prediction on a second term at this point, no. Do you think he's likely to win the Republican nomination? Yes. I Why? Do. Uh, because I think he's still extraordinarily popular um, with Republican primary voters. And um, having seen him in action as one of his opponents in 2016, he has made a special connection with a large, large swath of the Republican Party during the primary and just increased that during his time as, uh, as president. What about that interaction with him as a challenger to Donald Trump in 2016 and 2015 surprised you? Things you knew him for quite a few years before that. Well, I have to tell you, Major, to be honest, I never thought he was going to stay in the race. Um, you know, as you know, uh, Donald had flirted with running for president a number of times before. And I always thought that he would do it for a little while, um, get bored of it, and would move on to something else. And so the first thing that surprised me was his stick to that he really wanted to pursue the nomination and, and wanted to be in the race and stayed in the race. Um, I thought as he went down the escalator in June that, you know, we would see him for a couple of months, a couple of debates, and then he would leave. So that's the first thing that surprised me. The second thing was the way he really did dominate the entire race from a media perspective. The media was completely infatuated with Donald Trump. And the level of coverage that he got compared to all the rest of us was staggering. And part of that was him and his personality. Part of it was the media's fascination with him. And that made it very difficult for me or any other candidate to get any uh, media oxygen. Um, and whatever we got was just kind of parceled out to us by you know, media folks, um, you know, in a very small way. And so that surprised me. Third thing that surprised me was how much he connected to regular folks in the country. You know, after all, he's a billionaire from uh, Manhattan. Um, I didn't think he would connect with regular folks, but as I went door to door, my wife went door to door, it became clearer and clearer to us that he was really connecting with regular people across the country. So those would be the three biggest things that surprised me. Let's talk on the, touch on the media for a second. Was there something reckless about that fascination you just mentioned? Oh, I absolutely believe so. And I've 
told media folks who have complained to me afterwards about the president, I've said to them, well, you guys helped to create him. I mean, he, I never saw a major before, I'll give you one example. I never in my life before saw um, a presidential candidate allowed to phone in to a Sunday morning talk show. In my, I've never seen it. And I don't know that we'll ever see it again. But the networks were so hungry for any Donald Trump content that if I wanted to go on Meet the Press, um, it was hard to get a remote. And if I didn't get a remote, I had to get on the train and go to Washington, D.C. and out to the NBC studios to see Chuck Todd. Um, and Donald could sit in his pajamas in his Fifth Avenue apartment and be able to speak to the media. And so I think that there was a lack of recognition. And quite frankly, I think it's because the networks were making enormous amounts of money off of him. And so, you know, I think that the, the networks made a financial decision that wound up impacting uh, an electoral decision. Based on your knowledge and relationship with Donald Trump, which, as I indicated, and as you write about in the book, long predated the 2015-2016 political cycle, yep. do you think he understood that far better than the media? Did he anticipate that, know that would be an advantage going in, and know he would be able to wield that in ways you or other Republican challengers could not? Undoubtedly. There's no question in my mind that he knew that that was his key advantage having been the star of The Apprentice for all those years, um, the notoriety in the tabloids, he used that um, and pushed the envelope with the media in ways that nobody else ever has. And the media not only accepted it, they, it, it even, even more, it was on jet fuel. They lapped it up and they gave him more and more and more. I, I tell the story all the time. I did two town hall meetings one day in Iowa and then drove another two hours from my last town hall meeting back to my hotel in Des Moines. I got up to my room, no room service, hadn't eaten dinner, ordered a Domino's pizza, and turned on CNN. And they were broadcasting live for one full hour a stump speech by Donald Trump. And I thought to myself, I got to about 600 people today in my town hall meeting, He's getting to hundreds of thousands tonight, free of charge, courtesy of CNN. So it had a real impact on the race. You write in the book at one point, after endorsing candidate Trump, you and a couple of your advisors, or maybe just one of your advisors, are on Trump Force One, the Trump plane, and one of your advisors looks around and says, we lost to this, meaning there was yeah. Trump and this teeny, teeny group of maybe idealistic, certainly energetic assistance, and that's it. In what yeah, ways, no, other than that, was, that did, did Donald Trump rewrite the book for campaigning for the highest office in our land? Well, that was my, my old law partner, Bill Palatucci, and, and who's now a Republican National Committee man, and he, he said to me, we lost to this. It was, it was Corey Lewandowski, Hope Hicks, Dan Scavino doing social media, Keith Schiller, uh, the president's uh, bodyguard, and that was it. And so, yeah, it was pretty shocking. And then, secondly, how else did he rewrite it? Well, he rewrote it by using Twitter in a way that no one else had ever done. I, I was familiar with the, that kind of approach because, you know, I had used YouTube in a way that no other governor um, had ever used YouTube. And 
really made myself more of a national figure through using YouTube. Uh, Donald Trump took Twitter to that whole other level where he was really able, when he wanted to, to go over the heads of the media and communicate to millions of people. And go, and over, your, and go over your head as well it. as a candidate, as, as a rival. I mean, to, to take a couple of things oh, you've said in this, in this conversation so far, it was my experience, Governor, watching the campaign. I started covering on a day-to-day basis August 2015. Donald Trump could do two phoners, whether it was a Sunday show or not, three tweets, and by 9 a.m. Eastern, whatever you were planning as Chris Christie or if you're Jeb Bush or John Kasich or Ted Cruz, your day's blown out. Yep, no doubt. And, and, you're, and you're being forced by whatever media is following you to respond to whatever Donald Trump had done. And, and I do believe the media was unwittingly complicit um, in all that. Um, and so he rewrote it through the use of Twitter. Um, he also rewrote it um, in some ways through his use of language. Um, and, and, you know, listen, I'm somebody who's no, as you know, no wallflower. Um, I'm the guy who said, get the hell off the beach. Um, you know, I, I'm not somebody who is reluctant to, to get tough and edgy, but he brought that to a whole other level. And I wonder if at times you thought to yourself, wait a minute, this is my routine. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Why is not, he doing my routine better than I am? I don't even know if he's doing it better. He's just doing it differently. And I'll tell you an anecdote from the campaign. My wife was going door to door in uh, New Hampshire, and she went up to one door and knocked on it, introduced herself as Mary Patton, as, as my wife, and, and the woman said back to her, oh gosh, it's so great to meet you. We love your husband. He's so bright and articulate, direct and blunt. God, we love him. I mean, we're voting for Trump, but we love your husband. He's a really great guy. And Mary said, well, wait a second. If you love all those things about Chris, why are you voting for Trump? And she said, well, because he's not a politician. Right. And it was anecdotes like that where we knew we were in real trouble if he stayed in the race because, you know, he he defined the race in a much different way. He was allowed to do that and, in fact, uh, aided and abetted in doing that by the media. And it became just a very, very different race than anybody ever could have anticipated it would become. One last thing about the race, and we'll get into the book here in a second. It's always been my thought, Governor Christie, that... One of the great advantages Donald Trump brought to the race was a sense that by the time either his opponents, the RNC, meaning the Republican National Committee, the media, the Clinton campaign, or the Democratic National Committee realized how serious he was about this endeavor, it would be too late. Meaning, I, you know, I, that, that, I you, that, that idea you. that you had initially that you thought it was a lark, that it was a two or three month thing and he really wasn't going to be persistent. Maybe he always was. And he figured by the time you all understood that, he'd already have the upper hand. It very well could be. I don't know if it was that strategic a move um, on his part, but I think it was unavoidable for many of us to think that it was a lark, given how many times he kind of head faked himself into a presidential race and out before. And so I think it was a logical conclusion to reach that he probably wouldn't stay. But just because it's logical doesn't mean it was right. <laughs> and it turned out to be dead wrong. So we were all wrong about that. So how much of this book did you write yourself first draft through? Um, I, I didn't write any of it first draft through. What we did was I sat with Ellis Hennigan, who's my co-author on this, 
we he would ask me interview me ask me questions i'd tell him stories we'd go through certain phases of my life we would then transcribe that and then we would both work from the transcript to to craft together um a uh, a, a chapter and so it was really that we the, the first draft of all this was that transcript of the conversation and those conversations would last anywhere from three to four hours and and then i was heavily involved then in once we agreed on a chapter then going back and editing it to really make it sound like my voice and how long did the process take you from beginning to end the process took me we began to write together in april and we ended at the end of september was it harder than you thought or about as you expected harder than i thought um because there were so many stories to tell, and the hardest part was picking which ones to tell, editing, cutting back, and it was just a lot of work. And, and I think um, I didn't understand just how much work it would be. Um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the entire process, but it was harder than I thought it would be. Were any parts of the book that you told that are personal, difficult for you to reach back to or reconcile yourself with? The book has a couple of things where you fault yourself, but not many. It's kind of, generally speaking, a favorable impression of you and your career. You're probably entitled to that. Did you struggle with how to either criticize yourself or stories that you thought might be too critical of yourself that you just decided not to include? Um, it, more the former than the latter. You, know, you kind of struggle with exactly you know what to share and and how to share it in the appropriate way i think when people read the book they're going to see uh, we're very open i'm very open in there talking about my marriage and having been married very young at 23 years old my wife was 22 and some of the early difficulties in our marriage which led to us separating a couple of times you know deciding whether or not to put that in the book was very difficult you know you're you're opening up a really personal side of your life but I decided in the end I, that it was an integral part of the story because battling and fighting to save my marriage, as both Mary Pat and I did and decided to do, it was a conscious decision, I think tells you a lot about who we both are as people. That, you know, knock down, we're going to get up. Um, put a challenge in front of us, we're going to fight. And I thought it was a consistent stream through my entire career and an important part for people to get a real view on me to understand that, you know, we've been married 32 years now. We have four children, but that was hardly predestined and we had to work real hard at it. But deciding to include that, deciding to include in there the loss of one of our, our children through miscarriage, um, those things were difficult personal things major to decide whether we wanted to share. But we both felt like it was an important thing to share with folks. The part about your early struggles as a married couple is very compelling. And for the audience's benefit, uh, I'll tell them what I read in the book, that it wasn't about infidelity, it wasn't about substance abuse, it was about immaturity, if I read the book correctly. Talk to my audience, uh, this audience a little bit about the immaturity factor of two people who do love each other but are maybe too young to be married. Yeah, I mean, it really was that. I, I mean, one of the stories that we tell in the book that I've gotten a lot of reaction to is um, you know us never living together before we got married, and we come back from our honeymoon in in late March of 1986, 
and opening day is the beginning of April, the opening day of the baseball season, beginning of April of 1986. I'm a big New York Mets fan, as you know, Major, and 1986 was the last great year for the New York Mets. And so I wanted to watch opening night where uh, the Mets were playing the Pirates. So I grabbed some food for dinner, um, and I went to go and sit in front of the television to watch the game. And Mary Pat said to me, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to watch the game. She goes, we don't eat in front of the television. And I'm like, well, no, I need to watch this game. And she said, no, we don't eat in front of the television. And I said, well, the hell with that. I'm eating in front of the television. <laughs> and it caused a big fight that evening. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, these are two people, two A-type personalities. As I talk about in the book, my wife worked her entire career on Wall Street. A woman in a man's profession, especially back in the mid-1980s, when she started in that profession. So she's very type A, very tough personality, and as am I. And we had to grow up and learn to compromise and understand what effort marriage really took. And so I think you read it exactly right, Major. It's, it was immaturity that was driving us apart, and we had to make the conscious decision to put the work in to grow up together um, and to preserve the love that we had for each other and it, the one mature thing we did do during that entire time was not have children. And so we were married for seven years before our first child was born. And that was a conscious decision on our part not to bring children into a relationship that we didn't think was quite yet settled enough to be able to handle raising a child. Just one more on this, Governor. You separated twice. You mentioned that. It's in the book. Whose idea was that? How hard was that? And there are a lot of people who might watch this interview and think, well, if you separate, you're finished. But you guys weren't finished. No. Uh, the first separation was my idea, and I left the house that we were sharing. Um, and then I moved back in, and the second separation was her idea. Um, <laughs> and she left um, and left me in the house. Um, so I don't think it was a tit-for-tat situation, um, I, but I think we just weren't ready. And we were, we were going through some pretty intensive marriage counseling that was very intense, um, and very difficult for both of us. Uh, and then after that, about five months, as I recall it, of that second period of separation, um, Mary Pat decided that she wanted to move back in. I said I wanted her to move back in, um, and that was in uh, around 1989, 1990. Um, and uh, we've been together ever since. So quite obviously, Governor, you know this book game somewhat well. Uh, the subtitle of the book is The Grabber, Trump, Kushner's, Bannon. Oh, and there's New Jersey, but you know as well as I do, Kushner's, Bannon, Trump, that's going to get the uh, attention of book buyers. It's going to get the attention of those who write about books and who cover this White House. What is your beef with Jared Kushner? Mm. Well, Major, I, I don't, I never really had a beef with Jared Kushner. I, I never met Jared until the presidential campaign. Um, but there is a history uh, between me and the Kushner family, as we detail in the book. Uh, I was the United States Attorney in New Jersey for seven years. Charles Kushner, Jared's father, was one of the wealthiest and most prominent citizens of New Jersey um, during those years. And I wound up prosecuting uh, his father uh, for tax evasion uh, and for uh, federal election contribution violations. Um, and for witness tampering. And it became a very uh, notorious case, uh, one that was resolved very quickly. 
uh, about three weeks after the uh, charges were brought, uh, Mr. Kushner pled guilty to 18 counts, and he was ultimately sentenced to 24 months in federal prison. Uh, at that time, Jared Kushner, uh, I didn't know him. Uh, I knew of him because I knew that Mr. Kushner had children, um, but I didn't know him. He didn't know Ivanka Trump, uh, and that, that to me was the end of the connection with the family. Uh, he went to jail, Charles Kushner, and that was the end of my involvement. And then fast um, forward. But then fast forward. Fast Not forward. Not only is there a campaign, a there's a nomination, there's a victory. You've been placed in charge of the transition. It's a bit sketchy or a bit intense, or not sketchy, but intense with Jared Kushner. And then something happens to your transition work. Pick up the story from there. And where I think the beef well, from there, actually arises. Yeah, well, the, the, the move from there is, and remember something, there is a section of the book where when I'm named transition chairman, Jared comes into Donald Trump's office and tries to talk him out of it in front of me and tells him that I'm untrustworthy because um, I had pursued this prosecution of his father. Uh, and Donald Trump stood up at that time and said, no, you know, Chris did his job. He was doing what he needed to do, and I'm going to name him transition chairman. So there's that bit of backdrop, too, that leads us to two days after the election, I've been running the post-transition, the post-election transition meetings, and I'm asked into a meeting in Steve Bannon's office in Trump Tower. And uh, Steve just looks me in the eye and says, um, I got to fill you in. We're making, we're making some changes. And I said, okay, what are we doing? And he said, you're out. And I said, excuse me? And he said, yes, you're out. Um, and your people are out. And um, I said, who made this decision? And he wouldn't tell me. And so I told him, well, I was going to go downstairs and tell the press that he had made the decision and he could deal with it. And he then said to me, well, it was, it was the kid who did it, and that's what he used to call Jared. Um, he said, the kid did it. He said, the kid's been taking an ax to your head with the boss um, ever since I got here. Um, you know, and so at that point, I had known that all of the protestations to the contrary that Jared had made to me personally, that he held no grudge, there was no problem, we were going to work well together, and I worked with him all throughout the debate prep and transition work, we met with the family every week during the, during the preparation of the transition. Never had anything but the slightest indication that there was any problem at all. Um, and then all of a sudden, not only was I fired, but all the work that we did was thrown away. And True. I don't think this administration has ever really recovered from that. Right. So this sounds, maybe to some in the audience, like a personal story. It has a personal dimension to it, but as I read the book, and look, I covered the transition, I've written my own book, much of what you say about the transition compares with the reporting I did about what happened in the transition. I obviously wasn't in there with the meeting with Steve Bannon that you were in. You have the direct quotes there, I don't. But they are on track as to what happened and why. And both of us come away with the singular impression that the president really wasn't dialed in on the consequences of this decision. From your vantage point, what did the president-elect lose with all the transition work you did, not only on policy, but more importantly, personnel? Well, he lost a whole bunch of things, and so did the country. Uh, we had some extraordinary people already pre-vetted and lined up for his consideration for every cabinet position and every senior staff position um, in the White House. Um, they had already been vetted. All of these people had already been vetted. Um, and ready to, for the president's consideration. We had executive orders that were prepared by former Justice Department and White House counsel office lawyers that would pass legal muster, in our view, 
for a number of different things the president wanted to do, including the restrictions that he wanted to place on immigration from countries that were exporting terrorism. Uh, we had white papers on every different issue he spoke about during the campaign with a plan to allow him to implement those, those ideas. We had a plan for every week of the transition having a different theme with cabinet officers consistent with that theme being announced during that week. And then a one-day plan, day one for the presidency, 100-day plan, and a 200-day plan. And all those things were in about 30 or so binders that were prepared for the transition team and by the transition team, uh, and they were all tossed away. What the president lost was the opportunity to get better personnel than what he's gotten since he's been president and a better plan to accomplish even more than he's already accomplished. And the president, it sounds to me, Governor Christie, had a blind spot about the transition process in general. First of all, he thought it was bad yes. karma. You will quote him many times during the campaign saying it's bad karma. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to raise money for it, even though it's an essential part of the next step. So the president has to own some of this, too. He didn't appreciate and value this work enough. If he had, it wouldn't have been thrown in the garbage. No, listen, he has to take some measure of accountability for this as well because he allowed it to happen. Um, and I think it does go back to the idea that he never was comfortable with the idea of a transition going on, despite the fact that it was required by federal law to begin in the spring of 2016. And... He was never comfortable with what he considered to be the bad karma um, that would come from planning for a presidency before you had won the presidency. He also thought that if he got involved at all, he would be distracted by it. And he claimed that Mitt Romney was distracted by preparing for a, trans preparing for a transition and that that hurt his ability to beat Barack Obama. Now, the president is the only person I've ever heard that from. I didn't hear it from the Romney transition people or from... Governor or Senator Romney now himself, um, but the, the fact is that the president believed it, and I think that detachment from the process led him to not value, as you put it very well, not value the work nearly as well as he should have. I think now, two years in, he has a much better understanding of the fact that he needed that work and it would have made his tasks as president significantly easier. Governor, what would you say is this president's relationship to the truth? I've said many times, Major, that the president at his core is a salesman. And he is trying to make the sale of whatever he's selling every time he speaks. And he speaks in really, really enhanced um, hyperbole. Um, and sometimes that hyperbole is just stretching the truth a bit, and sometimes it breaks the truth. But he always sees what he's doing as consistent with his job to sell a particular point of view for what he considers to be the greater good of the American people and of the country. And that if he needs to do that to get it done, he will do it to get it done. And I think that's the best way to understand it. The, way, the reason I ask you that is there's a section in the book where you talk about what, from your experience, because you knew the truth and you talk about it in the book, the president, as a candidate, lied about you with Bridgegate, lied about Hurricane Sandy and President Obama for political effect. And I wonder, as you wrote that, and as you look back on it now, is that just politics as normal, or is that something offensive? I think it was both. I think it was offensive politics as normal. 
um, if I can combine the two. And I'll tell you, the rest of the story, in my mind, is just as interesting about Donald Trump as the fact that he would do it. Now, the motivating factor for this um, blow-up by him towards me was the fact that I had just received the Manchester Union Leader endorsement, the, the, ma the only newspaper, really, the only major newspaper, Daily in New Hampshire, with a, with a pretty storied history of endorsing primary candidates. They had endorsed me for president. Um, Donald Trump was really upset about that, thought he deserved the endorsement, wanted the endorsement, and was very disappointed. And that was the kicking off point for his remarks. Um, and so we have to understand first that he was agitated. But then what happened afterwards is even more interesting because he launched this attack against me from South Carolina um, in, in a midday event. Um, I then counterattacked against him um, over the wall in Mexico, etc., on, um, on that evening from Iowa. And the next day, we were driving to our next stop in Iowa, and my campaign manager, Ken McKay, got a phone call from Corey Lewandowski saying, you know, his boss was really sorry about what happened yesterday. He doesn't want it to happen again. He'd like to have a truce. And so Ken relates this to me, writing it down on a piece of paper while he's talking. And I say, you know, no truce unless I get a direct call from him. And Ken conveys that. And lo and behold, two hours later, I get a phone call from Donald Trump where he basically says to me, listen, I, I know, I know you didn't know any about, about any of this stuff. I was angry and I wanted to lash out at you and I did. And, and he said, I was wrong and I will never do it again. Let's not be attacking each other. And I said, okay, that's fine. We shook hands, we walked away, and he never once attacked me again in the campaign. If, so that tells you a lot about him too. If not for Bridgegate, do you think you would have been the vice presidential running mate with Donald Trump or his attorney general? If not for Bridgegate, I think I might have been the nominee for president. That damage. Um, and I think that in, yeah, I think that a number of these people, that Bridgegate induced them into the race. I, you know, I don't know that, that Donald Trump would have run but for Bridgegate. I don't know that Jeb Bush would have run but for Bridgegate. Because remember, Major, after my 2013 reelection, I'd gotten 61% of the vote in a blue state, 51% of the Hispanic vote, 29% of the African-American vote. I'd won the female vote against a female candidate, and I'd won 65% of the independent vote. And so I was modeled to be the new kind of person in the Republican Party who could get those kind of uh, constituencies to vote for you. And then Bridgegate happened in the beginning of January of 2014. I think it changed everything, and I'm not sure that a lot of those people would have run um, if, uh, if I had been in the same position I was in at the end of 2013. But I was not. And I think that certainly Bridgegate was used as a cudgel by people who opposed me, both um, in the vice presidential search and, um, you know, in the, uh, in the AG search. How much of that is your fault? Well, I'm accountable, but I'm not responsible. You know, in the end, I, I hired two of the three people who were involved in the matter, and I have to be responsible for having hired people who, in the end, were not trustworthy, who lied to me uh, and lied to my, my senior staff. And so I'm clearly responsible for that. 
And so it always comes back when you're governor uh, or president. It always comes back to being your account. You've got to be accountable for it. And then the question is, are you responsible for what happened in terms of having participated in the act or some part of the act yourself? I never did um, and never had any interest in any of that. And, and by the way, it was stupid. We were up by 30 points. Why in God's name would you want to punish a small town mayor who didn't endorse you as a Democrat? It made, never made any sense to me. It still today doesn't make any sense to me. And, but what does make sense is that it was my fault in hiring those two people. And ultimately, um, that's, uh, those are the two people who, along with the mastermind of the plot, David Wildstein, who pled guilty, these two folks were convicted and, and they're now getting ready to go to jail. A through line in the book is your high level of energy, your ambition, your sense of learning how to deal with a defeat and a setback early on. I'll talk to you a little bit about what it meant like, what it meant to be benched for a year on your baseball team. But a through mm -hmm. line is this tremendous drive. I wonder, just taking our last five minutes of this conversation, Governor, how much of you, either on a daily basis or once a week or once a month, either seethes or just has this sense of bitterness that this one thing if we are to believe you, is what stood between being the nominee of the major party that you've always been in, the Republican Party, and possibly president of the United States? It's not bitterness, um, uh, Major. In the beginning it was. Um, I was angry uh, and bitter towards those people who had done this and had used power and authority that I had earned and that I gave them, and they misused it in a way that was abusive and stupid um, and I, you know I was very angry but as time passes you have to let go of that anger and all I have now is regret that um, it cost me some opportunities um, and where I really think I could have helped the country either as president or as vice president um, but in the end you, that's all you can have is just some regret because when you read the book and you look at the life that I've had um, I can hardly complain about the extraordinary life that I've already been able to experience. And so I try to keep it all in perspective, Major. And, you know, early on, there were days where I couldn't keep it in perspective. And I did spend a lot of nights awake staring up at the ceiling. Um, but now um, I have I've just dealt with it much better and understand that this is part of my life story. And by the way, this is something that I intend to come back to come back from as well. And that's why the title, Let Me Finish, is what it is. Right. So what haven't you finished and who's stopping you? Uh, well, no, I, I don't think anything's stopping me. Um, what I haven't finished is I don't think I've yet finished my contributions to our country. And, and I do think there are going to be opportunities and times for me, whether it's through governmental service or in some other way, to continue to be an active and important voice in the deliberations of our nation's future. And I want to continue to do that because it's something I think I'm particularly good at and that I really love and enjoy. And it's one of the passions of my life. And so... So I let's just clear something up. I'm let's just finished. clear something up. <laughs> A lot yep. of times these books are platforms for something. You're not going to run against right. Trump for the nomination, are you? No, 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 no. I, this is... No, this is not that at all. Um, so this is This 2024. is my first opportunity to write a book. 
This is 2024. Oh, and, and who know? And and major. And 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 who could ever think that far in advance? Um, you you think that far in advance in politics? You need to have you know some deep psychiatric treatment. What, what I mean by let me finish is that I know I've got something to contribute still, and things that I want to do. I don't know how that's going to manifest itself, but what I know is that it was cut just a little bit short, and I'm not quite done yet. Would you like to serve in this administration? I've had lots of opportunities to serve in the cabinet and in the White House, and I've turned those down um, because nothing that was offered to me excited me enough and I thought dealt most directly with my most um, capable attributes um, what to would be willing you? to move from New Jersey. Well, I told, the, I told the president right at the beginning when I endorsed him, as you so you know from reading the book, in February of 2016, he asked me if I win, what do you want to do? And I said, there's only two jobs that I would be interested in, and that's vice president or attorney general. Um, I was a U.S. attorney for seven years. I love the Department of Justice, and that's something that I would have been very interested in doing. The president has decided to go in a different direction. Are you comfortable with the way this president talks about the Justice Department? Not always, no. And, and I have told him at times when I thought that his comments and his commentary were out of bounds and not constructive um, to helping make the Justice Department the most effective um, tool we have in ensuring that justice is done in this country. So no, and when I have those objections, I speak directly to the president about them. And if I'm asked publicly, I, I express my concern about them in, in the exact same way does, I have just done to you. I know with, with uh, and understand and appreciate and acknowledge the line that people draw in their exact conversations with the president, but in general, how does he respond? Does he respond at least in a way that you think he's taking those observations you've given him on board? Depends on the day, Major. Um, some days when I tell him that, he, I can tell he's listening and he takes it in and is processing it. And other days he's just really angry about the special counsel investigation or some conduct of the FBI. And then on those days when he's angry about it, he more just wants to vent to a friend. And that's what I permit him to do. And on those days, you know, weighing in and telling him the, the ways that he's wrong are probably not the most productive uh, moments of time you'd spend in a day. So I wait for him to cool off and talk to him about it later. How much is anger a part of his personality? Uh, you know, I think it's an element in his personality, but I think to make it a major element of his personality is to make him too much of a cartoon character. And I don't think that's who he is. I, I think that anger is part of it, but so is determination. So is an ability to compartmentalize things at times. Um, so is an absolutely unbridled ambition to be the very best that he can be. Um, there is also an element to him, which I write about in the book, that he's an extraordinarily loving and caring father. And you, you read in a book about some of the conversations we've had about fatherhood together. And I think it gives people another window into Donald Trump, who he is, um, and, and what parts of his personality um, you know, he's displaying rather openly now um, later on in life. Taking that statement you just made about family, do you think there could ever realistically be a significant role for you in this administration so long as Jared Kushner is a senior advisor inside the West Wing? 
Sure, I do. Um, and and I and so I. So the grudge is not that, that big. It's not so big that it would be a veto exercise of Jared over you, even though it was once before, maybe twice. The country, I, I believe the country is bigger than any of that, and I believe that both the president and Jared, the more they are participating in the jobs they have, understand that more and more acutely. What about Steve Bannon? You're not a big fan of his in this book. You no. describe him as a liar and a fraud. Why? Uh, because he's a liar and a fraud. <laughs> and, and, and the fact is that anybody who's followed his career knows that he is. Um, and, and Steve just is duplicitous. And he tells you one thing, then he does something the exact opposite. Outside of the boundaries of normal politics? Outside of the boundaries of normal politics? Oh, yeah. In, Absolutely. Can you explain Absolutely. that? Absolutely. And, and I think, well, I mean, I explain a number of instances in the book where, you know, he's just fired me as transition chairman. And he's trying to convince me that he's supporting me for attorney general. And I said, like, do you think I was born yesterday? Like, why do you think I would? How does that work exactly? Um, you know, and, and, and also when I know that he's a longtime friend and confidant of Senator Sessions, who also wants to be attorney general. So, you know, it's that kind of duplicity where you just say to yourself, don't waste your time. Like, why are you, why are you acting that way? Um, and, and I think there's more and more explanations once he gets into the White House, has his hands on at least some of the levers of power and influence, and I don't think he comes out of it very well. You said something earlier in the interview I want to double back on. As part of the transition plan, you had, if I heard you correctly, Governor, and the transition team had prepared a lockdown, legally defensible travel ban. Is that correct? We believe, listen... You never know till you go before a court, but we believe that we had things prepared that were um, that were legally defensible. Yes. And when you saw the one that was first propounded, what ran through your mind, knowing what you knew about those I, preparations? I, I called the president, and I said to him, "You need to reconsider this, and we can help you with it. Um, don't go forward with this." And he. This was before it came out. Uh, no, it was right after it came out. Um, I said to him, don't, don't go forward with it. Withdraw it. Let's do a new one um, before, you know, you get too far down the road here. Um, but um, He obviously disagreed. He, he told me he, well, he told me he was assured by others that it was legally defensible. I told him I thought they were wrong, um, and it turned out that they were wrong. So you write in the book, Governor, that the president at times maybe perpetually, has been surrounded in his political career by riffraff. Why is that? If the president has as keen an insight about as many things as you and others, you in the book and others and anyone who's observed Donald Trump, he's not a dummy. There's no way you can assert that Donald Trump is not a smart person at many different levels. Yet, as you write in the book, others have observed it, hangers-on who are unqualified, who don't have his best interests at heart necessarily, find themselves close to him, turn on him, and make things less productive than they otherwise would be. Why does that continue to happen? I think there's a few reasons for it. I think the first one is a, a former aide of his said something to me that I think is, is incredibly accurate, and I don't know why it's true, but I know that it is, that the president is not is disloyal to the people who are most loyal to him. 
and it's stunning to me to watch it, and I've been victimized by it as well. Um, it's stunning to see, and I don't know why that is exactly. And, and I'm not the only one who's observed this. As I said, this is another former staff member who shared that with me and, and shared their observation about it. Um, and, and I think that, you know, he also makes certain decisions based upon impulse. And, you know, personnel decisions based upon impulse are often very, very wrong. Um, and so, you know, I think that those are the two biggest reasons I can see. Um, for why he's made some of the poor decisions that have been made. I will also tell you that when you don't have great people around you, they don't bring great people to you because they don't want to be eclipsed by someone who's bigger, brighter, smarter. Um, so they bring you middling people that they think they can control and that won't dominate um, the role they're attempting to play. And I think that was particularly true with... Um, uh, with uh, Steve Bannon and and the folks who initially ran the White House. Based on your experience with and love of politics, is that which you just mentioned, disloyal to those most loyal, sustainable? Uh, in the political world, no, it's not. It's the only thing you have, isn't it? Isn't it one of the most important things? It's not the only thing you have. You have your, your other talents, your ability to speak, your ability to persuade, you have your your ability to craft ideas and proposals. So there are a lot of different attributes to a very good politician. But all of those um, things exist within a leader. vessel, a protected vessel, do they not, Governor, of trust and a set of loyalty with people who you believe in and believe in you? Don't those things best inculcate and, and, and uh, arise in that protected environment of trust and loyalty? Amen. I agree with you 100% on that. And, and I, I think in the president I've often spoke about, he's asked me, because he was a close observer of my governorship, um, and he said to me, you know, you never had any leaking. You had no leaking in the governorship. It was amazing how you had, even during Bridgegate, he said you had no leaking. Why is that? And I said, because my people understood that I would always, always have their back. Always have their back as long as they were honest with me. And that we were all pulling the oars in the same direction. And I said, Mr. President, if you set that type of culture, you'll get the same kind of results. But if people think that the best way to communicate with you is through the media, um, is through you know, self-aggrandizing in the media or diminishing others in the media, um, then you know, you're never gonna do away with leaks. Um, and it's gonna frustrate you significantly. But that's the way you do it, and that's the way I did it in New Jersey. And that's why the team I had in New Jersey as governor, such an extraordinary group of people, combination of a former assistant United States attorneys and uh, folks in private business and folks in the political world, and bring those all together to set a certain ethic, which is what you just described, that that trust and loyalty is kind of the protective cover over all the other talents that they bring. And I think that's when government operates best. You've mentioned a lot about your career as a U.S. attorney. It's a big part of this book um, in general. If there's a subject of any kind of investigation and those people around that subject find themselves either indicted for lying 
or having pled guilty to lying on things they thought they were doing on behalf of the person at the center of that investigation. In general, does that tell you anything important? It's smoke, it's not fire. And so I think, you know, what a, a careful prosecutor does is to look at those things, examine the evidence surrounding it, um, when possible, interview the people that he needs to interview, subject to Fifth Amendment uh, concerns, um, and tries to get to the bottom of things. Um, but I think that the prosecutor always makes a mistake when they assume anything. You know, I used to have young prosecutors who would come to me, and when I would question them about certain aspects of their proofs, their evidence, they'd say, come on, boss, you know he's guilty. And I'd look back at them and say, see, that's the most destructive attitude a prosecutor can have. What I think I know is much less important than what I know I can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. You know where I'm, you know where I'm going with this question, too. because it's on the minds of a lot of Americans, and I think reasonably so, even those who are not in a partisan way always opposed to this administration or this president. They wonder why so many people around this candidate or president have either pled guilty to lying or are indicted for lying about things they did in his general orbit. Is there an innocent explanation I'll for that? Well, I don't know if it's innocent, but I think there's an explanation for it that doesn't necessarily mean that the president has committed any crimes. And the explanation for that is bad people and stupid people lie even when they don't have to. So and this if is, you this look at is, that list of... The explanation is there's a, a, uh, an accumulation of bad and stupid people near this president. There's no question. If you look at Paul Manafort, Rick Gates... Mike Flynn, um, George Papadopoulos, Roger Stone. Um, you know, these are folks who are either not very bright and or not very truthful. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times as a prosecutor I saw people lie when they didn't have to because either they were too stupid to understand what they were exposing themselves to or... At their core, they were just bad people who had difficulty ever telling the truth. And some of those people fit either or both of those categories. So to go back to your representation about Bridgegate, not responsible but accountable. The president, therefore, mm -hmm. may not be responsible, but he is accountable. Sure. And so when the if, White House says this has nothing to do with us, it does have something to do with Donald Trump, does it not? Well, it, it has something to do with his personnel choices his judgment it may not have anything to do well sure it may not have anything to do with russian collusion or with any crimes committed by the president or anybody in his family but it's certainly listen i have no doubt in my mind that if donald trump had it to do all over again he would not hire paul manafort and rick gates i don't i don't have any doubt in my mind that he, if he had the chance to to you know go into the uh, transponder uh, the DeLorean from Back to the Future, and go back and have a do-over on that one that he wouldn't hire them. I'm sure he'd love a do-over on Mike Flynn. Let's talk about Mike Flynn. But because, unfortunately, because but unfortunately, in real life, Garrett, you, unfortunately, <laughs> in real life, you don't get do-overs. Unfortunately, it's only a kickball on the schoolyard. And you can call me Major. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Mike Flynn, 
my fault. Uh, you talk yeah. about him at some length in the book. I write in my book uh, something that has been reported before, uh, a little bit more detail in my rendering, that you, others close to the president raised cautionary flags about Michael Flynn, the president of the United States, in their first encounter right after the election gave the president what, at one level, he considered to be genu genuine and generous advice, which is personnel as your gut tells you. You're going to have lots of pleaders, lots of people whispering in your ear, go with your gut, trust your instincts. You won, and that is an important insight that you have, and you can bring to these decisions, because they matter and they're important. Trust your instincts. But if I can give you one piece of advice, be careful with Michael Flynn. And yet the president did not heed any of that advice, internally or externally. No. Why? Nope. I, I, it's one of the really eternal mysteries to me, Major. Um, you know, the, the bottom line is that I must have had, from June of 2016 through November of 2016, I must have had a half a dozen conversations with Donald Trump where I told him in no uncertain terms that I thought Michael Flynn should have no position of significant responsibility in the government. And I just said to him, he's a train wreck. He has no judgment. His demeanor, his temperament is, is bad. Just don't put him in an important position. And the last conversation we ever had about it was the day after the election um, when I met with the president-elect. And <clears throat> I begged him, if whatever you're going to do, we were talking about who you might select for chief of staff. And I said, don't make any other decisions until you have a chief of staff in place. And he said, well, I've made one already national security advisor and i said please tell me it's not mike flynn and he said oh chris stop it you know you just don't like mike flynn and i said you're right mr president i don't like him you want to know why and he said yeah and i said because he's going to get you in trouble and it was the next day that i was fired and then you recount in the book a fascinating conversation at the white house after michael flynn is fired yep uh in Valentine's Which also Day goes to the judgment of Jared and the president. Sure. Valentine's Day 2017, um, my wife and I went for lunch with the president. Uh, Jared joined the lunch with the three of us. And um, Mike Flynn had been fired the day before. And the president said, well, now that we fired Flynn, we're not going to hear any more about this Russia stuff because he was the guy who interacted with Russians. And I just started to laugh. I said, Mr. President, there's no way. This is going to be over soon. I said, I, I've run these investigations. I said, I've been a subject of these investigations. You know, the fact is that you um, are going to be going through this. We're going to be talking about this till at least Valentine's Day of next year, if not further. And he said, no. And Jared told me, you're crazy. And I said, no, I'm not crazy. I've just done this before many, many times. I've run these investigations many times. It's going to take a while. And, and the advice I gave him that day, which I've given him dozens of times now, is there's no way you can make one of these shorter, but there's lots of ways you can make them longer. Was the firing of James Don't Comey an act about that, it. Made it, that made it longer? Absolutely. Absolutely an ill-advised act that was executed incorrectly um, and which completely underestimated what the reaction of both politicians in Washington and law enforcement across the country would be towards the president taking that kind of aggressive step.
So even though you don't think highly of Steve Bannon, when he says that was the biggest political mistake of the first year, you would agree? That's one of the places where Steve and I are on the same page. We got three minutes to go, Governor. I, I've, I was fascinated by the story in the book because uh, most people don't write about athleticism and spend most of their time talking about not playing. And you talk about being benched, your, if I recall correctly, your senior year because another yes, player sir. took your position as catcher and you had to watch your team prevail, win, 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 and you're on the bench. Why was that important to you? I think it's an important story because I think, you know, I, I had a pretty uh, wonderful childhood. And as I talk about in the book, I grew up in a great town, had great friends, did very well in school, and played, played baseball and loved it, and played with great players on great teams. And my senior year, a guy transferred from a private school back to the public school, an old friend of mine who was also a catcher, and, and I got benched after having been the starter the whole year, the year before. And I had to sit there and watch, or I chose to sit there and watch as one of the captains of the team, uh, even though I wasn't playing, uh, as my team, my team went 28 and two and won the state championship. It, a lot of people told me to quit and I refused to quit. I hung in there, I stayed as a teammate. And I think it was an important early life lesson for me that life isn't always gonna go your way. And when I got to the end of the season, and I was celebrating on the field the state championship with my friends who I'd been playing baseball with since I was seven years old. I was really glad I hadn't quit. I hung in there. I, you know, you know, bit down hard and didn't complain and just said, you know what? I'm going to make myself as valuable member of this team as I possibly can. And I'm going to enjoy the experience. And I think it taught me in life not to just dispose of things that you really care about but to be willing to fight for them. And I think that's a theme throughout the book. In the last minute, what did it teach you, that experience, about fairness and or justice? That, you know, life isn't fair. Uh, life is not always fair. Often is not. But that you can't use it as an excuse to give up. You know, part of what this book, Let Me Finish, is all about is about getting knocked down and getting back up getting knocked down in high school, getting back up, getting knocked down um, in your marriage early on and getting back up, getting knocked down in your early political career and getting back up, um, getting knocked down as governor and getting back up, uh, getting knocked down as a presidential candidate and getting back up. That's what my life is about. I will never quit. And I want other people who are facing challenges who read this book to hopefully take some solace from the fact that Someone who they see on TV and who they may know through public life has gone through a lot of those same challenges and has persevered because he hasn't quit and they shouldn't quit either. My mother used to tell me all the time, remember, Christopher, you're not the center of everyone's universe. And it was a great lesson that she taught me all the time that you have to be the center of your universe. You have to be the one who pushes. You have to be the one who works hard and who never gives up. Governor Christie, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, sir. If you'd like to view other Afterwards programs online, simply go to our